The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 137 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. My name is Sean Rapier. I'm your host. We have got a fantastic conversation for you this week. But before we get into the episode, I always like to thank our reviewers. And this week uh, on Apple Podcasts, we had quite a few five-star reviews. So thank you so much to, these are all usernames. Sorry if I slaughter your username. I, I don't always know exactly. I try to figure out what they are, but uh, but a special thanks to Jaw Groves, Nevada Tooth Doc, which that one took me a little bit, uh, but I'm assuming maybe a dentist in Nevada, but Nevada Tooth Doc, uh, Grand R Us or Grand Russ, Easy OC 740000, and Captain Kid. Thank you all so much for your five-star reviews. And Captain Kidd says we, we met uh, about a year ago when he was filming me performing or doing something. Uh, love to know how we connected if you drop me a message. That's awesome. Thank you all for those five-star reviews. We really appreciate it. Uh, this week on the show, my guest, Derek Sainsbury, such a humble and just incredibly smart guy. And I did get to meet him in person for a minute. He dropped off a copy of his book. We did stay more than six feet away from each other, but uh, he is a brilliant guy and he's so open about uh, some of the struggles in his life and ultimately the triumphs of his book. It is just awesome. And this week in my latter day life, put another dime in the jukebox. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And this week, my guest on the Latter-day Lives podcast is an author with such an amazing story to tell and an expert in a part of church history that I know almost nothing about. Derek Sainsbury, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to talk about your book, and I have so many questions. You were kind enough to stop by my house, and we did some nice... uh, some really nice social distancing when you stop by. You <laughs> and I stayed uh, many feet away, but I appreciate you bringing me a copy of the book. I've looked through it, and it's fascinating. But before we get to the book, let's get to know you. Tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up. Well, I was born here in Utah. I grew up um, all over the place. Between when I was born to when I was 18, I lived in 18 different places homes in two different continents. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I moved around a lot. Um, actually it's even worse because one of those is six years long. So, Oh my goodness. Do the math and it's not as fun as it could have been, but, um, so what, what took you guys all over the place? Um, well, uh, initially, uh, we, uh, moved out my, I was the oldest of my family and we uh, moved out to the Taylorsville area after a few moves. And we lived there for six years. And then my parents um, started to have some uh, some marital problems. Mm. And the decision was made to move to Australia. That's where my mother is from. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. So we moved to Australia. 
and I started seventh grade there. Um, and, and that's seven through 12 all in one school. So mm. I, was, I was in the youngest grade, the only American and the only Latter-day Saint. So it was a wow. very, <laughs> very interesting time in my life. What city uh, did you live in, in in Australia? So it's it was a town called Sunbury, which is about 30 kilometers north of Melbourne. Wow. Okay. I've, I've spent a fair amount of time in Melbourne. but uh, Have you? Yeah. And I've been corrected by people that it's not Melbourne. It is <laughs> Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's a beautiful place, by the way. I mean, gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Melbourne's yeah. absolutely stunning. But what does that do as a seventh grader from Taylorsville? To suddenly go to Australia. Well, it was it was a difficult time. I'll be honest. Um, I, I didn't have uh, very many friends. Uh, I got bullied a lot, and um, I, I it was a very difficult moment for me to to be honest. But um, something happened to me there that years later I finally understood the value of, and that was actually when. We, we made the decision to come back to the United States. I had to check out of school. And when I went to go check out at the library, they told me that I still had a book checked out that I knew I, I didn't. And mm. this, this librarian, she was not going to uh, check it off. So I wasn't going to be able to get checked out. And I was just so nervous. And uh, the head librarian came over and she heard my accent and she said, where are you from, you know, in the States? And I said, Utah. And she said, are you Mormon? And I said, yeah, not expecting what that would bring because <laughs> that it also caused other problems there. But um, it was interesting. I've never forgotten it. She looked to the other lady and she said, if he's a Mormon, he wouldn't lie. Just sign it off. And wow. at the time, at the time, I was just get out of Dodge. I'm so grateful. But as I've gotten older, uh, I've I've prayed for and one day really would really like to meet on one side of the veil or another, whoever it was that uh, so impressed this woman yeah. that uh, that's how she would think about Latter-day Saints. Derek, that is really powerful. So how long did you live in Australia then? It was just about a year. Actually, my parents... Uh, marriage fell apart and yeah. and they were divorced and we ended up having to move around a lot. And that's why all those different places after that, that as a teenager, um, my, my, my parents were really good about for the most part, keeping us in the same kind of Taylorsville Banyan area as we got, you know, had to move over and over again. So that was good. So that, you know, my brothers and sisters and I were able to, for the most part, keep, keep our friends yeah. around us. So we've had a lot of guests on who have come from uh, divorce at different times. And I mean, how much did that shape your life and, and kind of who you were at that time? How consequential was that for you? Oh, I'd say very consequential. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be who I am, I think, unless that had happened. And that wasn't always a good thought in my mind, but, but it is now. Um, yeah. I was the oldest of what would my mom remarried um, and had three more kids. And so I was mm. the oldest of eight and um, moving around a lot and not having a lot of money um, and being the oldest caused me to have to grow up pretty quick. 
Did you feel that burden? Like, Hey, I'm the oldest. I need to be the one who kind of runs things, you know, stepping up to somewhat be, be a man. Yeah, I did feel the burden. I, you know, (laughs) looking back, I'm not sure how well I did, but I, uh, the perception, the feeling that I had was, yeah. I mean, my, my sister, who's 18 months younger than I, she, she and, um, she and I, uh, would often go to the bishop's storehouse too to kind of work, work out our food situation, mm. and and it was I mean it was difficult for all of us obviously, and and um, when I went, the arrangement was to go out with my dad every other weekend, and he didn't go to church, and when we were home, um, those two weekends a month, you know we we'd probably go one. You know, and so I, I really didn't have, I knew some information about the church uh, just growing up and stuff, but uh, yeah. didn't re- didn't really have a, a testimony of God or a testimony of the church or a testimony of much of anything until I was a, a senior in high school. Were you, now we're going to talk about your writing and uh, your kind of scholarly pursuits. Were, was were books a big part of your life growing up, or did that come later? Yeah, I've I've always loved books and both fiction and nonfiction. And my father um, was really big into military history, and so I, you know, by the time I was ten, I had three or four books on Pearl Harbor, and I could tell you, you know, which battleship sank and which didn't, and <laughs> and stuff like that. When I got into high school, my sophomore year. I was kind of a brat in high school too, um, uh, as a person trying to, you know, I think more like trying to get attention from other people, you know? Yeah, and sure. so I was not a great student in Mrs. Peacock's, uh, uh, world history class. And <laughs> she, uh, she made me stay after one day and talk to me and made me feel important, made me feel like she, uh, cared about me. And I just, I, I returned that love and attention by get way getting into history. Well, you know, later on when I went to college that the, my, with my first degree, I got a, a minor in history just because, you know, for the most part, because of Mrs. Peacock. I can hear it in your voice, how important this teacher was to you. Yeah. Well, and my senior year, um, as well, I had a seminary teacher really changed the trajectory of my life. And, um, I, I'd gone to seminary all those years. I didn't really, you know, pay attention much or read much or, or do anything. I went, my friends went, you know, kind of a thing. Um, and you know, a lot of the circumstances came to a head in my home life and social life, the middle of my senior year, Hmm. uh, that led me to, uh, to, he would have us write to him every week at the end, you know, the last class of the week Hmm. and, and I wrote something very inappropriate and very uh, flippant, and huh. um, to you to say it, you know, nicely. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that night, it was a Friday night in February, and that night he called me on the phone, which you know that's really rare back back then, and and um, we talked on the phone for about a half hour, and he was so concerned about me that he left his little family in Sugar House and. And uh, drove out to to Banyan, where I lived, and mm. the two of us in the cold sat out on 
you know, the, in the dark on, we had a white trash couch, we called it on our front yard, hmm. uh, that just sat there and the two of us talked, um, for probably about an hour. And, you know, I, I, I came away with two things. I absolutely knew that Pete Sunwall loved me and I started to want to believe that Jesus loved me too. And it was, uh, he would, I had seminary right before lunch. And so he would often, um, force me to stay (laughs) and eat lunch with him. His wife would pack an extra lunch for me. And, and it was about this same time too, that, uh, uh, I met my wife. She was in high school with me. She actually locked her right across the hall from me, but we, uh, we started dating and she, she was, uh, such a loving, caring, awesome person. You know, it's, it's oftentimes that children of divorce look for love and attention, right. With a boyfriend or girlfriend. And sure. Yeah. And that's, that's something that, it, that had happened in my life already. But, um, her her name was Meredith Pettit and she was just so awesome. And so these two people kind of came together within a month of each other. Awesome. And just flipped my life around. Well, actually he only taught seminary for two or three years. And then he went on to become a a doctor. He's a doctor down in Alpine area down there by you. Mm. And um, we ran into him years ago at, at, uh, Cabela's, but you know, and, and I went up and hugged him. I thought his kids were going to freak out because this man out of nowhere runs up and <laughs> gives him a hug, but I love I, it. We introduced each other's kids to us and my wife, Meredith had had him as a seminary teacher too. So he knew her and, and, uh, I, I remember telling him, look, Pete, I don't uh, know how many people you've saved as a doctor, but as a seminary teacher. And, uh, since then, I mean, he's the reason I chose when I came off my mission to be a seminary teacher. And yeah, I was going to say, sem- seminary has been pretty darn important in your life. Tell us what your what your uh, what your job is right now. Girlfriend made sure I went on a mission. <laughs> yeah, where did you where did you serve your mission? And I, I served in Italy, actually, the twice now defunct uh, part of an Italy mission. Oh, twice defunct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's now it's half of what the Milan mission is and half of what the Rome mission is, basically. Or half uh, of it was in each of those missions now, is the best way to say it. But mm. I came home and I'd fallen in love with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, all I wanted to do, the only desire of my heart was to do for others what uh, Brother Sunwall had done for me. So I didn't have any idea how you did it or how much you got paid or whatever. But I came home and, and figured all that out. And, and I've been teaching for 26 years now um, in seminaries and in institutes and some uh, administrative stuff. Currently, I'm at Witch Cross Seminary, which is where I started, which has been kind of neat. I've actually taught a couple of uh, children of the of the first students I taught here 25 <laughs> years ago, which makes me feel really, really old. <laughs> and to come back here and be in the same classroom, in the same office, and it was just neat. And, and then on July 1st of this year, I'm actually moving down to the religion department at BYU. Oh, that's awesome. Will you be teaching then? Then I'll be in the ancient scripture. Oh, you know, Derek. When we talk about the power of one and what a difference one person can make in people's lives, 
I, I mean, does it get much more than that? I know, uh, right? I mean, yeah, you know, I was talking with my students the other day. We're, we're doing Zoom right now. That's how we, <laughs> that's how we <laughs> hold class. And we were going through Abinadi's, uh, the conversion of Alma. These Alma run out and the guards are chasing him, you know, under orders to kill him. And then Abinadi is put to death himself, and he has no idea if his only convert, you know, <laughs> even survived. And so he goes right. to death not knowing if he's made any difference, other than he knows he's done what God has asked him to do. But then you look at that, and the rest of the Book of Mormon is about the descendants of that Alma. I mean, they're the, they're the rulers and the, and the prophets for the rest of the story of the Book of Mormon until Christ comes. And so... I, you're absolutely right. We don't know uh, the ripples that go out from uh, acts of service, acts of love, acts of genuine kindness, um, and maybe even reaching out to the porcupine. You know, President, or excuse me, Elder Maxwell used to say that sometimes it feels like when we're serving and loving one another, it feels like you're reaching out to pet a porcupine, and uh, <laughs> and that's definitely what I was in, the, in February of of 1990. Uh, I was definitely a porcupine. And so, um, yeah, the power of one is an amazing thing. The things you went through going through a divorce and at such a difficult time and being the oldest and all these things, you know, clearly you wouldn't wish that on anyone, right? Uh, You know, but at the same time, I mean, are you able to look back and go, okay, I, I can kind of understand that even through those toughest times, God was really putting me on a path. Absolutely. I, 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 uh, when I, now I can look back and I can see God hanging on to me in so many different little ways, a friend Mm. here, uh, a leader here, um, uh, you know, whatever it may be music. I mean, I, I, you know, a lot of people turn to things to distract themselves I never turned to, to alcohol or drugs or smoking or anything, but I ha- I listen to music 24-7. I mean, I can still <laughs> quote every 80s song front to back and back to front. And I've grown up singing power ballads, but uh, <laughs> anyway. You poor kids. You're lucky well, kids. <laughs> you know, they're lucky. Back now, and I see just so many ways God was holding on to me until the moment mm. was right to get into my heart. and. And, you know, the experiences that I've experienced given me empathy that's allowed me to do exactly what I got into this job to do, which is to be able to find those that are struggling and uh, be able to connect and help them. Does it give you a different perspective then? I mean, as I'm sure there are a lot, you know, we're all, we all have unique experiences and I, I would never want to paint with a broad brush. But the experiences that you've had, does it allow you to connect with certain oh, students yeah. on a different level? Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it's been an amazing experience to be able to to do that. I, I mean, go five or six years ago, I had a, I had a, a mental breakdown. You know, I'll be totally open and honest. I'm, mm. uh, and have, you know, struggled with depression and anxiety since then. And, yeah. and you know, between that. And the experiences I had, you know, growing up, um, my wife has has faced and beat cancer eight times um, in the past Whoa. fifteen years. Yeah, so I, I've I've got this accumulation of of empathy. I think that God's given me that has been a rocky road, but 
I can yeah. connect with a lot of different students and hopefully, you know, help them to hold on as well until, until they have their moment that brings them around. And, and yeah. it's, it's, I wouldn't trade, I wouldn't trade what I do for the world or for anything else. I absolutely love it. Yeah. I, if, if I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit more and I appreciate you being open, you know, one of the things that, you know, we're, you and I am, from what I'm gathering, are pretty close in age. Um, and, uh, you know, when we were growing up, you, you didn't hear about mental health issues at all, uh, unless you overheard your parents whispering, because it was always a whisper, you know, right. it was something to be ashamed of, something not to talk about. And one of the things I love about living now in this time is that people talk and people say, Hey, here's what I've been going through. And it's so remarkably helpful. Did you feel a, the, the breakdown or the pain coming on at once? Was it over time? Well, I mean, I, how does that, how do you, I, how does that happen? Sure. I, I, um, I mean, I'm, we, there's a history of, of, uh, mental illness, you know, in my family. Um, in, in, in a lot of, I mean, I, right. <laughs> I don't know if so, there is a family without a history of mental yeah. illness. You so, know, I mean, there's, there, there's something yeah. there. And I've always been kind of um, a bit melancholy by nature. Um, mm. And so maybe, you know, if I'd lived, if I was growing up now, I might have been diagnosed with something. I don't know. But yeah. um, what had happened was uh, my wife had, uh, had finished beating cancer. This was the fifth time. And oh, she, she had a major surgery afterwards to take out most of her stomach because it had come mm. back several times there. And, um, she got a blood clot, almost died, was in the ICU. Um, they ended up botching the surgery. Um, but they didn't mm. figure that out till like three months later. And so, um, basically for more than a year, I was a single dad cause this was one of the, the, the the worst cancers that she had to deal with. And then after that, had she had the surgery and then she was in the hospital all summer Oh, Derek. and they finally figured out what had gone wrong and repaired it. I mean, it was like someone turned a switch and she was back to the incredible, happy, awesome, wonderful, you know, do anything, conquer any mountain kind of, of, of girl that she is. And, and so for one year I'd been, you know, I, I'm still in graduate school. I'm still being stupid enough to coach, you know, competition soccer teams, helping the kids, you know, doing all this stuff. And and then when she was back online and took over a lot of that, I just crashed. Yeah. It was like the adrenaline or the whatever was keeping me going. And I just crashed. And it was horrifying. I had no, I, I couldn't figure out what was going on and why I felt uh, felt this way. And and luckily, I've got a great doctor and uh, a great um, counselor, and I've been able to to do things that uh, learn things to be able to 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 do better, you know, to yeah. to, to function normally. And and I still have my moments, but of um, course, of course, but totally about the time period that we're in, where we can talk about it and we can treat it like my wife's cancer instead of, yes. instead of you're a, you know, you're a, you're crazy. You're, you know, you're psycho or you're just always so, you know, I, it's, it's so much better now, like you said, than, than when we were growing up where, you know, it was yeah. basically, 
or you just don't you don't just don't want to do anything. It's not depression. Yeah. It's you just don't want to do anything. Either yeah, exactly. It's it was either it was either oh you're crazy. I don't want to talk about it. Or hey, chin up. Right. Or just get over it. You know, we've seen this a lot where people where people who have to be the strength don't realize how close they are to breaking until they're allowed to, you know, and when it's finally like, and then you can look back and go, I don't know how I was holding it up. Follow up on this. How is your wife doing now? She's great. She's, uh, she just finished chemo back in um, late January for the, the latest cancer that she's been dealing with. So she's, she's cancer free right now. Hair's growing mm. out. She loves that. And, uh, <laughs> but with COVID, right. She's yeah. had to become a prisoner basically. And that is so, right. if, if you knew her, she is like the most go and do jump around, happy, energetic person in the world. And so I've actually been very impressed with her obedience to stay home and, uh, <laughs> stay away from, uh, from places. Cause she's very obviously with all the cancer she's had, she's very, yeah, uh, vulnerable to to disease, and so, mm. she, but but she's healthy and great, and and probably just a little bit stir crazy like we all are. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure this is a lot uh, a lot to deal with, especially after beating cancer again. Right, and then it's like, oh, good news! Now you get to stay home all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, that's tricky. And then, amidst uh, you know mental health issues and cancer. And everything else, you thought, hey, you know what? What if I became a leading authority on Joseph Smith's <laughs> candidacy for president? <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of time for that, right? It's, a, it's such a natural transition. <laughs> and uh, this is something, this is an era of, of church history and American history I don't know a lot about. We don't talk about a ton. I mean, it's, and it's certainly not hidden by any means. I mean, at all, but at the same time, I knew nothing about it and it's a blip. And if you would have asked me five days ago before uh, you and I met up, I would have said, well, it was just him. He announced and then somehow didn't end up winning and moved on. Oh my goodness. There's a lot more to this story. So before we get into the book itself, tell us how this came about that uh, you started studying Joseph Smith's candidacy for president? So when I, you know, when I came home from my mission and I understood the church, the gospel more, not necessarily church history, but the gospel, and I was so into it. And of course I started um, preparing and then doing all the stuff you have to do to become a seminary teacher. I don't remember when, but at some point I came across something that said that Joseph Smith ran for president. And, it was, it was disconcerting to me, you know. Faith crisis is too big a word, I think, uh, or phrase to, to, but it really, it really bothered me, you know. Yeah. In my kind of naive mind, um, I was like, well, why didn't he win? I mean, if he, if he declared <laughs> if he's God's prophet, you know, why didn't he win? And and you know, in our modern church um, environment of not being uh, involved politically as a church, right? I was, yeah. I was also of the mind, well, what in the world is he doing running for president? When I decided to do my PhD, my professor, um, you know, encouraged me to, 
you know, use that as a good project for, for a class to go investigate it more. And particularly, he said, go look at whoever these missionaries were that he sent out. And so it was a, it was a graduate paper my first year in, uh, in my Ph.D. program. And I was just, it, it was a black hole. Like I'd find this and then I'd find that and I would find this. And I started finding more and more missionaries that actually went as I read journals and newspapers and so forth and so on. And so I ended up making it my dissertation. And between uh, looking at all the material and all the health crises that were going on in my family, um, it took me about 10 years to do my PhD. So it took, I had a lot of time uh, mm. to research and write about this topic. And in the end, found over 600 missionaries went out. Past written church history has been, you know, 270 or 330. But I found, you know, almost 300 more. And I'm sure there's more that I haven't found, but, you know, I'm starting to exhaust both myself and the number of resources that are still left. So I'm sure there's some more, but probably not a lot more out there. When you started on all this, was there someone who was the authoritative source or did you kind of have to run around and pick this stuff up? You know, there was, there wasn't really, I mean, there were some books that had been written by what, what are called new Mormon historians that came out in the late seventies and Mm. into the eighties who were, you know, writing, stuff that was that really isn't controversial at all now but back then was deemed as controversial mm. and they had uh, several of those books fleshed out a little bit more about the campaign and about the council of 50 which i'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later but um there wasn't much there really wasn't much at all past the kind of the general yeah he ran for president yeah he sent some missionaries out and he was assassinated and so you know, it wasn't that big of a deal kind of a thing. We're now kind of in a, in a little bit of a renaissance as this whole topic because um, there's a book that just came out recently by a friend of mine, um, Benjamin Park, who's a professor down at Sam Houston State called The Kingdom of Nauvoo. And um, he he spends a, a good chapter on, on the presidential campaign. And then my book's just come out and then uh, another friend of mine, Spencer McBride of the Joseph Smith Papers, he's writing a book that comes out next year about the campaign. So wow. between the three of us, there's this kind of, you know, renaissance over a one-year period of of just an amazing amount of material about this time in church yeah. history that just hasn't been out there before. So one of the things I want to make sure that we're clear on, because we started off saying, hey, it was, you know, not a faith crisis, but certainly a faith question and it, it drove questions. I want to make sure we get to the point that you're now past that. <laughs> that yeah, absolutely. That through the research and, and what you're doing, it's, it's no longer a question anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm very comfortable and uh, see, uh, and I'm very comfortable with his decision to run for president and yeah. for how serious he and the other church leaders and members of the church were taking it. And, in researching all these men and one woman who uh, who went out to preach and to politic at the same time and talk yeah. about a mission, right? And um, reading their experiences and how they felt about what they were doing and about the church and about trying to build up Zion. And after he's assassinated 
and they find out out on the mission trail, you know, weeks, weeks later, yeah. uh, who they become. And in, 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 in investigating them and reading who they are and, and what they become, my testimony of them was, excuse me, of the, of the restoration was incredibly strengthened through basically the testimonies of these people who gave everything um, to go out and, and politic and preach for Joseph Smith. And then when he's killed, uh, you know, pick up the pieces and move on, come out here yeah. west and, and, uh, and try to create Zion out here. Amazing. And the book is called Storming the Nation. It's a beautiful book. And it's, uh, tell it's, so a lot of it, much of it is uh, about this this army that went out. Yeah, you know, for lack of a better term, this army of missionaries, and uh, you know, all these these missionaries that went out to to share this message about the gospel and Joseph Smith. What are uh, can you give us just a a couple of highlights as to some things that you discovered in your research? First of all, obviously, the number of them. Uh, this is no you know token effort. There's never a missionary force that has 600 out in the same year again until uh, 60 years later in the mm. early 1900s. And as far as a percentage of available men to go on missions, there's never been a missionary force like this in the history of the Restoration. So it's it's wow. a big it's a big deal. Um, it's a much bigger deal than we've than we've given credit for. So I think that's probably the first thing. Um, the second thing is, is that um, at the edges of the electorate, they were they were making traction in some places. Uh, in other places, they were being you know close to being killed. Um, and there's all kinds of not so fun stories that uh, that I put in the book too about that. But there were some places where you know they were getting some traction about the ideas that Joseph Smith was putting out. Although he, as a candidate, was never popular. You know, uh, yeah, sure. the, the ideas themselves kind of did ring true to some people who were, you know, felt disenfranchised by both of the political parties at the time. And so I, I guess that, you know, most of the time we don't talk about it or it hasn't been talked about because it comes to nothing. Right. Joseph's killed. He's the first presidential candidate in the history of the United States that's assassinated. And so the campaign ends and, you know, it's it, it kind of turns into what you know, what could have been or what might have been kind of a thing. And so, you know, now going back and being able to uh, research and dig up all these, all these evidences, we see that, you know, it was a very serious effort and that it was gaining some traction um, uh, as well as some pretty heavy opposition as well. And there's, I mean, you'll find in the book, there's stories about, you know, at one conference in New York that they hold, they they baptize over a hundred people over the weekend, and really, oh yeah, you'll hear them, you'll you'll see them, uh, you know, gather in the Kirtland Temple, and day one of the conference is all about church. Day two of the conference is Joseph Smith for president, you know, and <laughs> and you'll see them in the book. You'll see them as companionships, being a stay a night in a family's home, and one of them will teach out of the Book of Mormon, and the other one will teach out of Joseph Smith's political pamphlet. And uh, so it, you'll, you'll see this kind of interesting mission 
that no one, yeah. no one else has ever had in the in the restoration of the church to both, you know, say here, you know, here's the restoration, here's the prophet. By the way, he's running for president, you know, to save the nation, and and uh, you know, please vote for him. So you'll find stuff like that. You'll find, wow. um, you know, some pretty interesting persecution, uh, pretty intense in some places. There's a great story of a in Tennessee where um, a they're holding this this rally, this conference in a courthouse, and and all of a sudden, uh, in walks through the door all these all these men with bats and uh, and bricks mm. to break to break up the party, you know, as it were. <laughs> and um, it's a very tense situation, and the sheriff is is kind of leading this group, and and he calls out, you know, the the Mormon missionaries and. And they're not backing down, and so one of them steps to to uh, to inflict hurt on the the elder that's speaking, and one of the local Mormons, a woman, six foot, two hundred pound, Mrs. Camp is all we know her, as far as her name. Mm. She says, "If you touch one of those elders, I will see your heart blood." Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and she won't. Uh, she, you know, she gets in between them and they march out with her and, and none of them are hurt. And her husband, not to be outdone, uh, he's out there with his shotgun uh, kicking around one of the one of the leaders of the mob around the around the courtyard. And so I just really want to meet this Mr. and Mrs. Camp one day and, and thank <laughs> you for protecting the missionaries. Oh, I absolutely love it. That's so funny. What a great story. So there oh, yeah. are all kinds of little stories and things that you have dug up. How long did it take to write the book? Uh, well, if you count the dissertation, in which you have to, it's been 15 years. What are some of the things that, that people might be surprised that came out of him running? Well, I think probably, you know, uh, the major thrust of the book is this group of missionaries who... Mm. Uh, really buy into this idea of the combination of religious and political, which, yeah. you know, is as actually part of the restoration and the idea of a Zion society, right? I mean, we understand mm. that, and the Council of 50 Minutes have made it absolutely clear that not only were they dead serious about uh, the presidential election, but they were also serious about coming out here in the West or somewhere where they could where they could build up this what Joseph called a theodemocracy or the kingdom of God with a capital K, which grew out of the church but wasn't the church, would be the, the government that would um, allow the, the Gentiles to come to them safely right before the second coming and then be the government that's turned over to Jesus Christ when he returns to rule the earth. And so the, these ideas are, you know, that go with these missionaries um, back when they return and then go out West, uh, you know, that's what they do. They build up a theodemocracy out here. Mm. So you find that, um, you know, whoever's the, whoever's the mayor of a town, he's usually also the, or excuse me, whoever the, is the bishop of a small town, he's also the mayor, right? Interesting. Whoever, whoever's a stake president, he's also, you know, in the territorial council or whatever. Mm. And so there's this, this combining of church and state that that um, is a natural outflow of what Joseph was was teaching in the last year of his life, but 
these men and women that come that went on these missions and then came out, they are dispropor- hugely disproportionately used to do this very thing. Mm. And so, you know, that's kind of the main thrust of the book that I think people will find interesting. And the fact that, you know, over 600 uh, of them did this and such a large number of them came out West, there's tens of thousands of people, probably more, and many of your listeners that are actually yeah. descendants of these men and don't even know that they were out doing this. <laughs> and so that's one of the reasons, too, that in, in, in the book and on my website, there's a list of all the electioneers. So they can see, oh my goodness, great grandpa Joe, he he was out there in Maine preaching the gospel and politicking for Joseph Smith. So I think that's the big thing that I'm hoping with this book is that people understand um, how how important it was that it wasn't just this asterisk and yeah. that it had a huge effect on the rest of the history of the church, particularly in the 19th century. And also that so many of us, including myself, I discovered myself that I was a descendant of one of them who was in Massachusetts doing this. And so, really? yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, you know, there's a lot of people that I've talked to that are friends of mine and uh, colleagues of mine. And, you know, so many of us are, are descendants of either through us or through our wife, you know, are descendants of one or more of these people. So, oh, that is incredible. Well, and the the uh, the book is beautiful, by the way. I mean, the cover art. I mean, it's it's just it's a this would make an incredible gift. Uh, it's put out by a, a little little company you may have heard of called Deseret Book. How did that come together? <laughs> so yeah, I once I finished my dissertation, I took a year off uh, from the counsel of my professor to just you know stop thinking about it. And after that year was over, I started turning it into kind of a more readable book for a general audience. And um, as I was doing that, I, I had an overture about applying to go down to BYU and I, I'm to teach down there. And I met with the person who was at that time in charge of the Religious Studies Center down there. And they, mm. they do four or five books a year in partnership with Deseret Book. And they were very interested in grabbing my book and, and uh, publishing it. And so it took a few years to get, you know, get it <laughs> after I rewrote it. Right. Uh, <laughs> it was 650 pages. And so mm. I had to get it down to the under 400 that it is down that, that I found that actually deleting <laughs> stuff is more difficult than writing stuff. And so it took a few years, but, um, we, we got awesome. it done, and so now Deseret Book and RSC are publishing it together. That is just fantastic. If people want to buy the book, what's the best way for them to get it? Um, Deseret Book, probably. My yeah. website, uh, www.stormingthenation.com. What a great has, name, has, too. Storming yeah. the Nation. I love it. Yeah. has uh, It has links there to Amazon and to Siegel and to Deseret Book. But it also, like I said, has the list of those um, – electioneers and links to my social websites or excuse me, my social media accounts where I'm actually every day I am I'm posting what happened that day in the campaign. So there's a lot more material that I'm posting on this, on the social media sites. No kidding. So, so for, if, instance, for instance, today is April 20th, right? Yeah. Or 21st, excuse me. April 21st. April 21st. So April 21st, 1844, 
Uh, two apostles went to the little town of Lima and two apostles went to the little town of Ramus outside of Nauvoo. And between the two of them, they garnered 32 more electioneers. And so, you know, every day I'm posting, it started back on January 29th when, which was the day that they announced the candidacy, right? When they decided to, to have Joseph Smith run. And every day I've been posting since, and I will all the way through, you know, through August when, when, uh, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles takes control of the of the church. So, you know, that's a, another fun thing people may want to go to and look at and just kind of follow day by day what was going on in the campaign. Fascinating. So if they go to Facebook, they can just search, uh, search for Storming the Nation. Yep. yep. And uh, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, you'll find it easy. Oh, gosh, I love it. Derek, this has been so fascinating. We're about at time. We're going to wrap up with the question that we ask all of our guests and that is, Derek, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Well, I guess in one word, everything. Um, I, I've come to know uh, the Savior, and um, I have a, a favorite quote from Joseph Smith that uh, he he said back in, in uh, April of 1842 at a, at a funeral uh, of a, a young 20-something-year-old who had died. He, uh, he said, quote, all your losses will be made up to you in the resurrection, provided you remain faithful. Mm. By the visions of the Almighty have I seen it. End quote. And um, I've, I've memorized that. It's kind of my, uh, you know, as I look back on my life and all the difficulties that I've experienced and some of the things that I've lost out with from mental illness and my wife's health and and other things. And don't get me wrong, I've been totally blessed in so many ways. But that's the point, is that mm. he hasn't waited till the resurrection. Mm. And I have been so blessed. And my losses have been so made up. I can't even begin to imagine what he's got in store for me in the resurrection. And, and that's a truth I wish more of us could feel and understand that it's okay that 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 uh, you know I, I I tell my students you know mortality is a mess and it, it's it's meant to be that way it's the only way it can be with all of us using our agency and in a fallen world and if we can just have that testimony that 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 God is in control and that not only has Christ paid the price of sin not only has He suffered so that He knows how to take care of us. But in my mansion are many homes, right? I go to prepare a place for you. It's not just he's going to make it up to you now through comfort and peace. But in the resurrection, he's got a lot of reward for what we lose here. And we all lose different things uh, being part of mortality. And so being, what being a, a member of the church means to me is that I know that, that Christ lives. I know that he knows my life. I know that he's already been helping me, not only helping me through it and rewarding me, but that he has uh, a future of un, unspeakable, as, as Elder Holland would say, unspeakable grandeur uh, ahead of us. He is a husband. He is a father. He is a gospel instructor. He is now a published author, and he is a world-leading expert in Joseph Smith, his run for presidency, and all of the awesome missionaries who went out 
The book is called Storming the Nation. It is available at Deseret Book. And definitely go and follow our guest, Derek Sainsbury. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. And my thanks to my guest, Derek Sainsbury. I have started on the book, and it is awesome. So well-researched and really worth picking it up. So, Derek, thank you so much. I also appreciate Derek being so open in his candor about some of his struggles. I've said it so many times on the show, but the more we open up about what we're dealing with, the more it helps other people to realize none of us are alone, and we all have struggles. Derek, you're a good man. Thank you so much. Uh, This week in my Latter-day life, uh, I got to take a little bit of a road trip, and I have to say, it was nice to get out of the house. I've mentioned a million times I normally travel, and for the past two months, I've been grounded, just here at home, working from home, and really haven't gone anywhere. But uh, my parents have been splitting their time uh, between a couple different places in Utah, and in one of their houses... They had something very important to me and my family, and that is something they picked up in the early 1980s. It is a classically restored, I mean fully restored, I believe it's a 1953 Seberg Selectomatic Jukebox, and this thing is gorgeous. In all of its jukebox glory, it is just shiny and bright. And it has the mechanism that goes back and forth. And my parents keep it loaded up with all kinds of records from the 50s and 60s. And I absolutely love it. And I have great memories when when I was a teenager of friends coming over and we would put on music. And it's just fantastic. Well, my parents wanted the jukebox moved from uh, the one house down to what is now kind of their main house. So my son and I loaded it up, and I took a road trip down to kind of see my parents and drop off this incredible jukebox. And I was amazed as we moved it. I hadn't moved it for a while, looking at how remarkably heavy it is. I mean, it is really, really heavy, built out of solid metal and wood. And it was so just big, and getting two of us to move it, even though it was on rollers, We had to move it downstairs and then lift it into the truck, and it weighed a ton. And I thought about how in the 1950s, this was true state-of-the-art audio. I mean, this was as good as it got. You were in your malt shop or your restaurant or whatever it was, and this was the fixture. And it was pretty cool. I think it plays, I think it holds 75 records, so it's 150 songs, and of course you put in A6 or A8, whatever, and it still sounds great. Now, in my own house, I don't have a jukebox, but what I do have in my bedroom that's really important to me is uh, I have a Techniques turntable, a record player, as it were, and uh, a bunch of late 1970s, early 80s components, speakers, and uh, tuners, and, and all of the equipment from sort of my youth that I love. I also have a record collection. I have about 600 records. And I love getting out a record and looking at the dust jacket and putting on the record and playing it. That's what I love because it reminds me of my youth. Of course, when we are in a mood for convenience, I say, hey, Siri, and I tell it what song I want to hear or what station I want to play. 
Can you imagine in the 1950s as they're building these jukeboxes, or even in the 80s as they're making record players, the thought that we could just say out loud whatever we felt like listening to, and automatically that music would start playing? What a world we live in. Look how fast that happened. And yet, uh, we have a couple of those Apple speakers, the HomePods, and for all their simplicity and the fact that they have literally millions and millions of songs at my fingertip, to me, there's nothing that compares with picking up a record and putting it on the record player, as it is for my parents to push B9 or whatever it is and play a song off of that jukebox. And I think life is like that. We all continue to progress. And sometimes we get hard on ourselves when we look back at our past and we go, oh, that was such a rough time. And fortunately, we're doing better now. But if we can look back at the beauty, yeah, I think if you were to judge, you know, the efficiency, if you didn't have an emotional attachment to a jukebox or a record player, of course, MP3s or streaming services like Spotify are a million times better. But there's nothing wrong with looking back fondly and looking back at our flaws, but also looking back at our beauty. Life is a great journey as we all continue to progress. It's just wonderful. But I'm grateful for my past. I'm grateful for the times that I wasn't as good. And of course, there were some things I was a lot better at back then. But I think we can appreciate the past, enjoy it, look back at it fondly, and still move boldly forward into the future and embrace what is today, even if it's a little bit difficult in these very, very crazy times. And I'm just grateful for that. I'm grateful for the Savior that every day I can get up and be forgiven and try to be just a little bit better today. But I would not trade my past for anything. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day Life. Thank you so much for tuning in. We so appreciate it. If you know anyone who would enjoy the show, if you'd please share it with them, that would just be great. And uh, of course, if you get a few minutes to leave us a review, we appreciate it. We can be found on Facebook, on Instagram. That's where we share all of our upcoming guests. And if you want to reach out directly, I can be reached at Sean at LatterdayLives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at LatterdayLives.com. Well, that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.